As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the On Farm podcast. It's Anna Davis here. As I speak, COP27, the gathering of world leaders to discuss climate change, is underway in Egypt. Of course, it's also a year since those same world leaders and many others were gathered in Scotland, in Glasgow. We thought, therefore, that it would be a good time to replay the conversation that we had this time last year. I went over to Fife with Dave, our producer, to the lovely pine kitchen table of SAOS chairman John Hutchison. I had a good and really thoughtful chat with John and Emma Patterson-Taylor, who is SAOS's climate change and sustainability manager. Great to be chatting with both of you today. I'm in the position of being very excited about COP and obviously are really aware of that significance, but also due to have a baby in about two weeks' time. So uh, two big things on my horizon, but nonetheless, obviously, internationally speaking, COP far more significant than what we're going to discuss today. I suppose not, you know, not everybody has COP26 on their radar, and we maybe can't expect everybody to have it on their radar, but obviously climate change is hugely significant for all of us. John, do you, what relevance do you think there is of the fact that Glasgow is playing host this year? Do you think that means that more people will be paying attention to what goes on and perhaps more of the outcomes will kind of become important for us? Yes, I think the fact that this has been held in Glasgow will certainly raise the profile of the whole climate change debate in Scotland and we will have to start to tackle some of these really difficult and important issues. And... Um, that in itself is a good thing. might not be an easy process, but it would quite possibly accelerate the need for change. I think farming will have to change the way it functions. Food production will have to change. And I think this is a great opportunity to have that all out in the open and to have a planned approach to this and have a roadmap towards where we want to go. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point. It's quite hard, be pretty impossible for anyone in Scotland really not to be aware that this is happening. And I think the farming world knows that as well as, you know, the rest of society. So I guess, yeah, there's got to be a win in the fact that it's in all of our consciousness. It's been on all of our radars for quite a while. And that spotlight will hopefully help that thinking and some of that behaviour change that we all need to see happening. Now, today, we, we've, we've actually, alongside SAOS, we have already produced five podcast episodes which look at some of the practical things that are being done and can be done to, to combat climate change. So we've talked about soil management, we've talked about biomass, we've talked about um, using waste product um, more efficiently and effectively. So I suppose today's not necessarily about 
looking for the practical solutions. It's more about, I suppose, talking about how we can enable more people to to get involved and be interested and, I suppose, take heed of some of the messages that come out. But I have spoken to a few, quite a few people. You know, we've got this target, net zero by 2045. I love a target. Uh, we probably all like something to work towards. But Emma, do you think that is overwhelming for people? And how do we kind of create stepping stones on the way to that target that help people to actually make a difference? Yeah, I think it's really tricky. I agree, like a target, love a plan, all of that. I do think it's a bit overwhelming though. And I think it's probably partly because what do they say, you know, when you've got that really huge stretch target in your personal life, internationally, politically, whatever, in a business, that you kind of need to break it down. Because net zero by 2045, or whichever point, you know, an individual business or whatever might have set, that's pretty huge from where we are. Most businesses, organizations, countries are nowhere near that point. And obviously, some are trying to pull that date closer. So I think there's something really key about breaking that down into milestones that feel more achievable. And I guess I think probably from farming's perspective, we're quite unique in that there's a real understanding of there are inherent emissions associated with food production. So whenever you look at any of the graphs that show that kind of projected um, direction of travel, it's quite clear that the challenge around farming is really that we won't be able to fall in the same way that some of the other sectors will. And I think that's the real tricky discussion of working out, okay, that we maybe accept as a case, government maybe accepts as a case, but therefore what is our journey? What is our direction of travel? And how are we going to get there? And I think clarity around that would be really helpful. John, wearing your farming hat as opposed to your SAS chairman hat, although I know you wear both of them all of the time. How do you feel about that in terms of the kind of, it, it is a very popular word at the moment, but the, the overwhelm of having a target way ahead of you, but actually not necessarily knowing what the journey holds to, to get there? And, and do you think the, the whole farming industry feels that sense of, oh, crikey, you know, we know where we want to get to, but exactly how do we get there on, on the journey? Yes, there is a big unknown. But for me, the elephant in the room is the political view on our food and the way food is retailed. And we have for many years now been pursuing a cheap food policy and I think the difficult conversation that needs to be had at political level is how we move away from cheap food to valuing it more. And there's, a, in my view, the only way we can implement reduction in carbon is to accept that food will become more expensive. And that's a difficult conversation to have. For too long now, food has been produced and sold at below the true cost of production. And by that, I mean we are damaging the environment and not costing in the full value of what we do. So we're, we're not replacing the damage that we're doing. So in other words, we can move to a more environmentally friendly food production system and lower carbon emissions, but food will get more expensive. And that's the difficulty. And I think once that's all brought out in the open, then as a farmer, we can implement the changes that we need to because we, we will accept that our cost of production will increase because the market will pay for that. But that's the starting point for me is to have that end goal in mind where ultimately the proportion of people's income that they spend on food will increase and that will drive everything forward from that point. 
Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting point, John. I would agree um, that kind of true cost accounting model that just isn't in place around food production. I think what's really hard is I just honestly don't know if there's any real political will or appetite to do that. And I suppose what I think is maybe quite interesting, and I wonder whether partly why the kind of heat that can end up being quite targeted on the farming industry in particular happens because the public really feel that and they feel really hyper kind of conscious and aware about that. And I guess that's something to do with the fact that, you know, we're all eating several times a day and we're consuming and we're aware of that fact. And so I wonder if in turn the general public's kind of unease or discomfort around personal choices they're making and an awareness of the shortcomings of the nature of that means that they kind of want to fix it. And then they kind of get hot and angry and bothered about bits of it that look suspect or that don't look quite as clean as they'd like them to, I guess. And I think that's a really, I think it's a really important point because that tension then sits with a government that never really sounds like it's willing to put up the price of anything for understandable reasons. But that leaves us in quite a tricky place as an industry, which I'm afraid I don't have a fix for. But yeah. And I think that the real low-hanging fruit in all this, and it's been incredibly easy and quick to do, is to reduce the 30% of food that we actually throw away. I mean, that's the biggest carbon reduction you can think of. And also to reduce the amount of calories that we eat as individuals. But but that that's a human behaviour thing, and it's it's all also down to how food is priced and the perception of the value of food. But, but these would be incredibly easy things to do and would significantly reduce carbon emissions. And as Emma said, you know, that we can't fix that in, in one podcast. But you're right, John, you know, in everything, and I suppose, you know, this whole COP26 climate change discussion, it's about finding the, lo- the low-hanging fruit. And I guess that's how you get from the start of the journey to net zero is by always finding the low-hanging fruit and doing something that you you can actually do and finding something that you can control rather than getting caught up in the overwhelming nature of of where you're trying to get to. But then maybe a difficult question, John, how easy do you think it is to to pick this fruit of, say, waste, for example? Yes, I guess there's a whole raft of things. I mean, education, the whole concept of, of diet and the quality of our diet is all linked into this as well, because more expensive food would improved diet because the cheapest food are the processed foods. So I guess a mixture of legislation, public awareness, and I think a bit of marketing. I think farming has a job to do to brand itself towards a more sustainable, low-carbon image and invite the market to pay more for that. So I think there could be a little bit of marketing and branding involved in shifting from this cheap, low-quality food to more expensive, high-value food. Going in, in a way that might seem off-topic for a second, um, do you think when it comes to, to climate change and farming being potentially an easy target, do you think the media have got a responsibility and a role to play in causing that? And do you think that's actually going to impact on the way in which we can move forward or not, Emma? I think it's tricky with farming. I think there's absolutely been a gap in terms of, I think, probably mainstream media outlets understanding the nature of farming 
and therefore the kind of coverage that we've seen and I think the kind of coverage that a lot of us in the industry have felt quite concerned and disappointed in. I think there's different reasons for that and maybe that kind of comes back slightly to our what does the public care about and maybe we have to accept that the public do, for a number of reasons, I don't think they're all negative, really care about food and where it comes from, which is a huge opportunity, but also means there's all this scrutiny. And then there's this kind of vacuum where I think as an industry, we've not been so good at filling that vacuum with information that the public want. And therefore, the media, not so well informed on these issues, can end up producing content which is consumed in a way that can be really tricky. And I think it's totally true to say that on a kind of international scale the sort of social media vegan plant-based movement has had a momentum that we have just not managed to keep up with at all the only other point i wanted to add which is i do think is relevant the media really did fall short in for far too long talking about climate change as having two sides so you know and sorry I love the BBC. I really do. (laughs) But BBC balance is really problematic for this kind of thing. And for way too long, we had a climate change denier positioned alongside a scientist saying it's happening. (laughs) And I don't think that helped anyone take it seriously and go, oh, no, of course, this is a crisis and we're going to take it properly seriously, rather than thinking that there might be a question mark over how valid it is. Yes, I think the media are going to be incredibly important in this journey. And in the context of farming having to promote itself much more effectively, there's so much more we can do to sell our industry, to sell our quality food. And it's something that we really need to engage on uh, a lot more. And, and I think SOS can help with that. So we need, we need to market ourselves and promote ourselves much more effectively. You're right, John. I think if you were to ask an ordinary, if there is such a thing, member of the public, whether or not farming was responsible uh, for climate change, they would probably list you know, several things that they perceive to be the problem without perhaps having a true understanding. And we can't blame them for that. We can only, I, I guess now, accept the fact that that's where we are and try to get the positives out there and generate that real understanding. I think farming has been... I suppose, you know, you could argue, well, we would all say that, wouldn't we? Because we work in the farming sector. But farming has been unfairly targeted. And I think maybe the expectations of consumers are unrealistic as to how we can change. You know, Emma said we farming can't get to net zero because of all the necessary inputs. And yet consumers probably don't know that, do they? So I, I guess it, that that's what makes it daunting for individual farmers. But I think there's an opportunity for everyone. And, and I was actually speaking to the SOS vice chairman, Rory Christie, who said that actually he believes every farmer has a responsibility to engage in some way with COP26. And there are obviously various ways of doing that, you know, through either through bodies like SOS or directly on social media or or whatever. But do you think that's true? Do you think we've all got a responsibility as people working in the farming sector to actually make the most of this COP26 opportunity and get our views across. Yes, I do. But I think the real power in this would lie in doing it collaboratively and cooperatively and collectively marketing, collectively assuring what we do in a verifiable way so that we can have proper verifiable standards regarding carbon reduction that could then be trusted by the public. So I I agree with Rory, I think it's more powerful if it's done 
collaboratively. And just wanted to pick up on that point um, and totally know what you mean, Anna, but I think farming can get to net zero. It's almost that balance of going, there are inherent emissions associated with food production, which we acknowledge and we understand. In a way, farming is actually incredibly well positioned to offset the inherent emissions that are associated with its activities. And, you know, whether we're talking about carbon stored in peat or woodland or soil, for example, there are lots of opportunities for farmers to demonstrate that kind of balance um, in that way. But it's difficult, isn't it, Emma, to have standards and measurement of such a big issue like this? How do we even begin to kind of tackle that? Yeah, I think it is tricky. And I suppose um, there are internationally accepted standards that are out there that we can all use and work together on. I think the frustrations that have existed in the farming sector around standards and measures have been particularly around kind of carbon audit tools or footprinting, that type of thing. And I think the reason that's tricky is because I think there's a sense of going, well, I use one tool and then I could use another tool and I might get two different results. And I think that is really frustrating. It's just really galling that you can't just go, oh yeah, okay, we're all going to get the same result and we're going to know more about this and we're going to have a proper understanding. I think, again, maybe it comes back to that point of going, although we need to be further along than we are, we're at the beginning of a journey and these tools will get better as we use them more. And if we use them, we can help that process of refining them. John, what what are your thoughts on that? You know, as a farmer, do you feel those frustrations that Emma's highlighted that you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm doing all these things, but actually I can't prove it. And so if somebody were to back me into a corner and, and we, we were having a heated debate, I've not actually got the proof at my fingertips. You know, I know that sounds very simplistic, but often when we're in a discussion, we want to be able to demonstrate what's being done. And that is quite challenging, isn't it? Yes, it's absolutely essential that we have an accurate and verifiable tool to measure what we're doing because this is going to be a journey and we we can't embark on that journey unless we know where we are in it. And most farms like me are only just starting on that journey. There's so much more that we can do. And at least then if we can measure what we're doing and see that there's progress towards the goal, then that is palatable from my point of view because at least I can see that there's an improvement. And Emma do you think we can see the light at the end of that tunnel or are we still a bit far off for that? Yeah I think for sure we can and I think I probably would just say there will always be there won't there given the nature of our supply chain that there will be different bits of it different supermarkets or processors who will have their own tool. I think my main feeling about this is let's just not use this as a reason not to grapple with the issue and engage because yeah it's a flawed system and it's not going to get perfect overnight and probably even if we get really good um, accounting tools that are the same in every and but you never get everyone to use the same one anyway (laughs) you know and farmers between themselves will disagree because probably one farmer will come out better in one and not so well in the other and in amongst that you'll have some bit of the supply chain where somebody else some private you know company will say well no we want you to do our carbon footprinting tool and that's completely different to something else so maybe the nature of the beast is just accepting some of the nature of that and i guess the reality is uh, which COP is highlighting, you know, we don't have time to sit and wait for a tool 
much as I totally agree with you, John, you know, it's needed. We don't have time to sit and wait for it before we continue to act, I guess. John, you farm on your own. Most farmers farm on their own. You know, that's a whole nother issue, isn't it? The whole kind of lone workers uh, topic. But let's talk about SAS for a minute, because we're not going to get anywhere as an industry if everybody just farms on their own and does their own thing. It's about working together. But even that, you know, that that's a big thing, isn't it? You know, working together sounds easy, but actually in practice, how do we do it? How do more people do it? How do we get more farmers to engage with that thinking about collaborating and cooperating? Yes, it's all done through our co-ops. So for instance, um, I'm a member of Scottish Agronomy, which is an organisation that effectively trials varieties and production systems for growing crops. Now, um, if they moved towards more sustainable farming systems and trialled new production systems, that would be very valuable from a collaborative point of view because they could advise us on the most effective way to grow what I grow, which is combinable crops, in a more carbon-friendly, sustainable way. So, so that is a very powerful collaborative model in that the knowledge that they gain through experimental plots, for instance, different cultivation systems, different input systems could be passed on to all of us without us all individually having to test these things out. And then there's the cooperative buying power of the machinery rings where we can make more efficient use of resources, again, reducing carbon. So so the key is to do it collaboratively and to cooperate. And, and for me, that's really the only way we can do this. This podcast and, and the two of you are never about lecturing people. That's not what we're for. But if there's anybody listening who is a farmer and they literally have not ever really had COP26 or climate change at the top of their agenda. What's your message to them right now? I don't think that farmers need to have COP26 at the top of their agenda. I think what they do need to have at the top of their agenda is how they're going to adapt for the future. And I suppose that's, you know, that's a way of looking at what COP represents and seeing it filtering down. But I suppose I would say don't be worrying about understanding the intricacies of these international gatherings because they're incredibly important, but they are operating at a high level that most of us would feel a little disassociated with. But I suppose the shop that we want to focus on is the one at home, isn't it? And it's it's the farming sector that we're all involved in, that we know and love. And it's wanting to really work incredibly hard to help that industry thrive. And I think I hope that every farmer understands that they're part of that and that they really can make a difference. You know, in society, we've all got our little bubbles of our own households and you might think about, oh, well, what choice do I make about my energy supply or whatever it might be? But every farmer has like jurisdiction over an entire parcel of land. And I know that varies depending on size, but your impact and your influence on that land is huge. And there's so much potential to manage that land in a way that has incredibly positive environmental outcomes and will make a direct contribution to the outcomes that COP26 is working to achieve. I think there's two things going on in any farm business. The first thing is you have to be financially sustainable. You have to make a profit. Basic thing about running a business, you you have to make a margin to survive. And secondly, all farmers, I would suggest, would want to do the right thing in terms of looking after their land and and looking after 
the environment, looking after the planet. But you'd have to remove the financial constraints to be able to do that because the financial viability would take always take precedent over doing the right thing. And that, that's my decision-making process that I go through. I'm going to jump in there, not to disagree with John, just to add a, <laughs> add a, an element. I really do think this is part of most farmers' outlook, particularly in Scotland. No one is looking to harm or exploit their land. There's the actual kind of sacredness in it all is that they're desperate to hold on to it for future generations and they really want it to be there. But that bit doesn't always come out in the telling. And I think if it did more, the public might feel more at ease about the sense that, yeah, it's under our care. I think, Emma, you're absolutely right. Raising the awareness through COP will hopefully shift farmers maybe more towards doing more of the right thing and perhaps taking a few financial risks to implement changes. Because if we go back to my grandfather's day, farming was very sustainable. They were much less reliant on external inputs. Everything was recycled within the farm. And and that was really a true closed farming system. And because of price pressure, we moved away from that. And I think if we could get back to that more holistic system that's rewarded in the marketplace, then that would be a a, a very a very acceptable thing to do within the farming community. It's what we all it's what we really all want to do. We want to be self-contained. We don't really want to be buying all this fuel and, and, and agrochemicals. If we could do it all from an internal system that would resonate with the sort of true farming ethos. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point that John makes. And and we really do need to acknowledge that farmers have essentially done what they've been paid to do by the state. Like that is essentially what's happened. So the state has this huge responsibility for, they paid farmers to rip out hedgerows, to intensify, to use lots of fertilizer. That's that's why farmers did it. And so this huge cultural change happened in that time. So I think typically farmers are left in this position of going, even you know if they have the time to kind of think about this stuff given everything else they're trying to do going no totally i like my heart would be in that kind of decision making space too but how do i exactly exactly as you said how do i do that when that's going to cost me money big time and it's a huge journey to go on and i think that i think the state you know the public purse and obviously they understand this but have a really critical role in getting the fact that I think you're totally right, farmers want to do this, but they are going to need help to do that. And the cultural change happened over those generations in a way that I think there's there's real relearning and education to happen for some farmers who kind of remember how it was, but like it's a bit too far away and you'll have to work out, okay, how do we do this again? And how would we make farming you know, have a lighter footprint in in all sorts of ways. And um, I think that's something that it would be no bad thing as an industry to say, we need and would like and appreciate help in doing this, in going on that transition. And I think that most farmers really want to do that. If a transition is going to happen, then there has got to be intelligent, creative thinking about how farmers are paid to do what they're being asked to do and what the public say they want them to do and I think that onus and I don't want to give government a hard time 
uh, used to work for them. Uh, you know, civil servants have a really tricky job. I, I'm not disputing that at all. But I genuinely think that that thing about the way farming has been quite distorted by public payment is huge. Like sectors, other sectors do not have this experience. And there's something about understanding. I totally know what you mean about consumers should pay more. I have always felt this. I completely agree with you. My concern is just that it won't happen. And that for me then takes us back to going, government, I'm sorry. I know this is awkward, but this is totally squarely on your desk. And Brexit means it's absolutely locally on our desk. This is like, this is a Scottish UK thing. You can't even blame Europe anymore. You literally can't. And that means that, You've got to understand that farmers have essentially responded to market forces which are warped by subsidy and have then acted as you have pushed them to see fit. And I think that that responsibility is really key and is completely missed when people say, oh, farmers are doing the wrong thing. You think, well, farmers are doing their best in a very weird situation. And so I suppose my word help is really around going However you're going to design this new scheme to support farmers, it's got to be helpful to get the outcomes that you guys actually want and the public actually want. There were some people listening who might think that COP26 is just a talking shop. We're creating this episode and it's going out on day one of COP26. People might be listening in months to come, um, but assuming that they're listening relatively live... What are your hopes for, you know, a month from now when things start to, to come out of this this event? Because otherwise it, it will just be a talking shop, won't it, if we don't get some concrete goals, objectives, whatever you want to call them? I would really hope that we do see something meaningful. I think that, um, you know, Biden and Trump's meeting and discussion around America, you know, back in the game one, thank goodness, but also being willing to put money in the game is really significant. And hopefully we continue to see that, you know, the developed world has got to help the developing world deal with just huge crises coming their way and acknowledge that the role that we play in the developed world is far more significant and we're going to be so insulated against so many of those risks and dangers. We will see what at a kind of UK and Scottish level, I think it will be really interesting to see at a kind of domestic level how things impact and whether we're clearer about some of those aspirations. So it'll be interesting to see what Scotland say and that obviously is very influential from all of our perspectives of going what are the irons in the fire? You know, what what is the plan? Because I think as a sector, we've been waiting and asking government for quite a while, what is the plan? I guess I would like to see moving forward, all farming businesses have to pass a certain standard and that would be an audited, verifiable standard that would evolve as time goes on. So we'd probably set the bar fairly low to start with, but then increase it. And and actually make that either a legal requirement or connected with support, whatever way we do that. But more importantly, anything that we bring into the country is also has to satisfy a similar standard so that we're on a level playing field and then the market will hopefully adjust accordingly. And I think there's any way around that. I don't think we can have our cake and eat it. I don't think we can move into regenerative farming and have cheap food. It just doesn't doesn't work. And beyond COP26, are you hopeful? Yes, if, if the market can reward us, we can deliver. It's as simple as that. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think and you have to be hopeful. We all have to be hopeful. I'm absolutely hopeful for farming, but I guess we probably do have to draw this back to climate change given we're talking about COP. And yeah, it's a tricky picture. It's not clear that we are on track for 1.5 degrees and we have to really hope that something comes out of COP um, in the next couple of weeks that is reassuring in that sense. But we have to be hopeful. And, you know, like Martin Luther King said, I have a dream, <laughs> like not I have a nightmare. And I think that's really important, you know, and maybe that's what's tricky in farming as well is that it's feeling like a bit of a nightmare if you're feeling negativity, you know, coming at you from all angles. So, yeah, like as as individuals in society, as professionals, as everything, like we are, we have to be hopeful. It's like it's our responsibility and to foster that hope in ourselves, but also in the sectors that we work in so that everyone can have a sense of positivity about the future which hey I'm having a baby so I have to feel like that <laughs> but I think we all need to feel like that I love that I, th I think that's so uplifting and I completely agree with you I think if you go through life glass half empty you, you miss out on opportunity and potential I think you've got to be glass half full because as much as anything it motivates you to get the glass completely full doesn't it I think um, so I like that philosophy and given that you're just about to have a baby, I think it's very important philosophy to have. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yes, I guess most farmers care about their land and are true custodians of the countryside. I know it's, a, it's an expression that's used a lot, but I, any grower I know has that ethos in them and it, it probably comes from being a, several generations before them farming. And I think that is always going to be there and I think it's in our DNA but we just need to be allowed to express that. And if the environment allows us, we will all do the right thing. Huge thanks to John Hutchison and Emma Patterson-Taylor, both from Scotland's Umbrella Organisation for Agri and Food Co-ops, SAOS. Now, of course, as we know, time flies. When we recorded that, Emma was about to have a baby and, of course, she now has a nearly one-year-old. I wonder if we're another year closer to sorting the climate crisis. Look out for more climate change chats on On Farm soon when Monty marks the end of COP27 with, among others, Denise Walton from Peelham Farm in Berwickshire. She's very much a leader in thinking about farming's impact on our climate, so Monty will be having a great chat with her. Thank you very much for joining me today. Our usual reminder that On Farm is made by the team here at Seen and Heard PR Marketing, and I hope you enjoyed. See you soon.